You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. Late Night Live. Hot topics discussed daily from 11pm onwards. Get involved by calling 0141-375-3434 or search Radio Ramadan 365. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's... Uh, oh, here we go. We're just after 11 o'clock and you're listening to Late Night Live here on uh, 87.7. And I'm your host, Dr. Nadeem Bharti. And I've got my co-hosts on with me today. Uh, Abdul Aziz and Nasir Niazbhai. I'm clapping for you today. Um, thank you, thank you. Uh, it's been a long day. It's been a long day. Um, you know, I've had quite a bit of sunshine. It's probably gone to my head. So, yeah. how have you guys been today? I'm good, Nasir. <laughs> I'm just cracking up sitting here, man. It's usually me or you, so you know this is up our name. Um, yeah, I, I hope everybody who's listening who knows our buddy here uh, changes his name every time you see him. Please, <laughs> I, I do apologize. I do apologize. No, 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 I, it's been a I long day. You know, I'm getting old. You know. oh, don't say that, man. We're all in the same boat. Yeah, you, you know, I, I think, I think, Niaz, I think Nadeem's uh, actually doing you a favour because he's trying to protect your ID, you know, from like Interpol and whatnot. So, you know, <laughs> people who come from Switzerland. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh well, uh, yeah, I had a, a nice day today. Um, uh, usual stuff in the morning, do a little bit here and there, and then went out. For, had to go out for a wee while. I was in the town. It was like quite eerie with all the, the some of the windows boarded up. Um, came home, opened my fast, and and then a mo- moment of weakness, I went and ate a chocolate eclair. So I've got a, a wee bit of a guilt trip on just now. Mmm, delicious. Nice, nice. There's no guilt in eating anything you want uh, in, in this month, man. I was actually thinking about cheesecake and uh, strawberry tart, stuff like that, which, uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> well, start. fantastic. I want to talk about cake. I've actually just had birthday cake because uh, my youngest Ooh. is five, and he just turned uh, five oh. today. So oh. that was Happy great. Birthday. We had a nice uh, – thank you. And uh, we, had a, we had a good uh, homemade birthday cake. Uh, with chocolate topping and everything, so that was great. And uh, yeah, it was nice. And plus, you know, when Glasgow is sunny, it's the best place in the world. And as you know, today was yeah. an absolutely magnificent day. So we were out in Pollock Park, social distancing, of course, but um, it was fantastic. So I had a great, great day today. And yeah, so um. Let me, without further ado, and anyway, yeah, uh, let me tell you a little bit about today's show. And we've got a really fantastic show lined up for you today. Um, um, it's uh, it's an amazing show. We've got, we're obviously, obviously everybody knows about deaths that have been occurring in... Oops, hang on. Uh, we've got a bit of a situation going on here. I think my five-year-old just heard me mention 
Barty King is running in. Oh, that's okay. He's more than that's welcome okay. to join. <laughs> it is a live show. You're allowed. It is a live show, yeah. Uh, this reminds me of that sort of situation where somebody <laughs> ran in. Uh, do you know that one on BBC where uh, the guy was doing the thing and his, his wife came in with the kids? Oh, yeah. She was amazing. It was great. I just saw them afterwards. Um, they had a kind of follow-up. Very nice family. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it was really funny, and it was wonderful. Very sweet. Sweetly done. It was like she was doing some sort of Pilates Kung Fu, trying to grab one, grab another, and calmly, you know, go low as possible and get out swiftly. She did an amazing, amazing job of that. Yeah, uh, yeah, and then when yeah, and then when she went when when she was off camera, uh, camera, I think she made like have leathered them. Maybe. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well, you know, I was going to say, you know, we normally do our sort of look at some of the papers. I, I will actually mention a couple of stories, if that's okay. Um, I don't know if you saw there was a story with uh, uh, a chap called Neil Ferguson. And he is uh, one of the epidemiologists, and this is the guy that tracks the way that disease spreads. And he was, um, well, he's being a bit naughty. Um, he actually uh, broke some of the social distancing rules um, and lockdown rules, and he um, decided to have a visitor who was his, um, I think it's his girlfriend, who came over to his house a couple of times. So he's actually resigned because the, uh, the Matt Hancock, who's the UK health secretary, said that, look, we just can't have that. So uh, I don't he know what you think He was speechless, Nadine. Did you see that was, bit? He was totally speechless. Matt Hancock I didn't actually watch the video, but uh, I read the news story. Yeah. Um, what did you think of that then? It was shocking, and yeah, um, it was. She was a married woman. To add even more insult to injury for all of them concerned, so um, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, you know, rules are rules, and yes. um, you know, if, if we have to abide why why they can't uh, is a, an absurdity. Uh, they're not above uh, the law. So yeah, like Calderwood up in Scotland, I think she yeah she should definitely. Uh, take responsibility. Um, uh, I absolutely, absolutely agree with you, especially as he came up with some of these ideas and a lot of the lockdown rules were implemented uh, through ideas that he brought on. Anyway, um, let's uh, let any, any other stories that you guys found particularly interesting today? Um, probably very quickly. Um, I... I read one thing uh, about an MP claims um, she was, um, so this is MP Nadia Whittam. She was sacked as a carer after speaking out that there's no PPE at her part-time job at a care home. So she's a labor MP for Nottingham East, but she returned to work at Larkhill Retirement Village to help with the coronavirus outbreak. And she was accused of spreading misinformation about lack of PPE in her interview with the BBC Newsnight. Um, that's extraordinary. I think it needs to be investigated, like like all things. And I would be trusting someone who's, who's an MP. Um, certainly people who work within the NHS and the care facilities 
should be allowed to speak out, um, especially in this time. I mean, if, you, if you're not allowed to speak out and you're afraid you're going to lose a job, I think that's just horrific. It shouldn't be allowed. Well, uh, we will, I'm sure, we'll be covering some of this uh, later on because the topic of today, uh, as you know, is looking at, you know, why are these BAME doctors dying? Why is it that the black, Asian, uh, Middle Eastern doctors uh, in the NHS are actually dying? And as you know, as the notification of deaths among healthcare workers started to come along, there was a really strong unease amongst people, especially from the BAME community, because every name seemed to be either Muslim or Asian or African. And as the days went on, it was pretty obvious that this COVID-19 wasn't as non-discriminatory as we thought, but quite the opposite, because BAME doctors were being overrepresented. So tonight's uh, that story is perfect because we're going to be looking at not just issues around PPE, but we're going to be looking, trying to get to the bottom of exactly what the question is and why is it that BAME doctors are being overrepresented. And we've got a really distinguished panel to deal with this. We've got Professor Naveed Sitar, who is a Glasgow-based, uh, gra- uh, born graduate. Um, we've also got Dr. Shazad Anif, who's a Glasgow GP, uh, who's been doing a lot of work with PE uh, at the higher political circles. And we've got a Dr. Asim Farooq, who is from London, who does a lot of work with the media. And inshallah, we'll be getting them on pretty soon to talk to us about uh, uh, about what they feel is going on here. So, Salam this is Dr. Asim speaking. Hi, well, yes. I was going to introduce you, so that's Dr. Asim there. Um, I was, if it's, uh, let's, uh, well, maybe I should, we've got the three of you on, so I don't know who wants to maybe, maybe have a look at, uh, maybe give us their kind of overall view. What, what do you think is going on? Why are so many, what's really going on here with with the with the Middle Eastern, Asian and black community? What do you think is really going on here in terms of the high number of deaths? I'll let you guys, I'll let, who'd like to take a stab at it? It sounds like Dr. Farouk wants to go for it. Yeah, Dr. go for it. Work, yes. And you, you, work down in, you work down in London, is that right? That's right. I work in London. I work in Croydon. So uh, obviously we have the home office there. So you can imagine we have a fair amount of BME. Um, I believe uh, the ME part of that stands for minority ethnic rather than Middle Eastern, actually. Um, I think you're absolutely right there. Yeah. Thank you for correcting me there. No problem, no problem. Uh, but yeah, alhamdulillah. Um, so we obviously are exposed to, um, and in fact, Croydon, we had uh, the highest, one of the highest death rates in London. Um, I think the Croydon is just just for the just for the listeners here. Where, where exactly is Croydon? Um, sorry, sorry, I, I forget. I'm uh, speaking to, to I'm speaking <laughs> to a Scottish audience here. Um, yeah. Yes, Croydon. Well, uh, Croydon is in South uh, South, South London. South London. That's right. Um, or as people say, South London. Um, so, um, but uh, yeah, as I mentioned, if, if anyone's ever been to the Home Office down there, then obviously some of the people will know that. Um, and as you can imagine, there is um, a fair amount of the BME population there. Um, I, I think, for me, um, I can often be walking down the street, driving down the street, and 
for me to see a non-BME face is actually an unusual thing. You know, it's it's more pretty much that they are the main yeah. faces you're going to see. And I, I believe you know, sometimes one forgets that, you know, maybe in, uh, in Scotland you, you know, don't have such a, a portion of uh, the BME population around you, I guess, don't you? Is that, is that correct? Yeah. There is a lot of um, uh, people here from these ethnicities as well. I think Dr. Nadim can confirm. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. I agree. So look, what, what I thought I might just do is um, I've got an interesting um, thing, which I think I was just thinking about, um, you know, what are the main associated factors with why is it the BME population is passing away and there are lots of different ideas lots of different things behind it and um, I actually come up with an inter interesting mnemonic to remember factors behind that and if you guys can think about the A levels and the GCSE levels that was my mnemonic so the A's stand for that with the BME population we have a lot of associated medical conditions which um, we can obviously discuss but as for the GCSEs there, there can be some genetic elements there are some cultural elements and there are some social elements as well as some economic elements which all have a big part to play in why the BME so could population you, could you repeat that again so it's yes. genetic, social so we've got genetics uh, GCSE genetics you've got the cultural factors You've got the social factors and you've got the economic factors, which, you know, with the BME population, all of these are issues which I can, you know, explain in a bit more detail. Okay. If you um, hold on one moment, yeah. can we um, bring on Dr. Hanif now? Um, could you kindly introduce yourself? And um, would, I'd love to hear more about you, please. Hi. Hi, assalamualaikum. It's uh, Shazad Hanif here. Uh, I'm a GP in uh, Glasgow uh, and Lanarkshire. Um, uh, is the volume okay? I know this Perfect. is all new with the Zoom Zoom talking. Um, so I, I think um, Nadim brings up a very interesting point here, which is the excess uh, mortality uh, amongst the BAME population. And I think it's probably useful for the listeners uh, maybe to get a context of what the figures actually are. Uh, and as, as, a pop, uh, as an overall percentage of the UK population, BAME make up about 14.14%. Uh, and the figures coming out uh, at the moment show that one-third, which is about 33% of uh, people admitted to intensive care unit are from a BAME background just now. So you can see the big disparity there. Uh, and even amongst the BAME, which covers quite a variety of of people within that, uh, there seems to be a difference amongst the, the within the BAME circle themselves. So, for example, Pakistanis have uh, at the moment have a 2.8 uh, times excess deaths. Uh, Indians are 1.5, and Black Africans who fall within this group are 4.3 times excess deaths. So, uh, it's it's interesting that even within the BAME um, uh, group, there's a difference in in uh, the morbidity and mortality um, rate. Um, and in fact, 40% of BME uh, people who've been admitted to ICU needed kind of renal support in there as well. So there's a lot of interesting kind of medical facts uh, that are coming to light just now. Now, what the reasons are, we're not quite sure yet, 
there's some hypotheses, which I'm sure some of my more esteemed colleagues are also on, may be able to shed some more light in. Well, on that note, uh, I'd like to just introduce uh, Professor Naveed Sitar, if he can come in, uh, if he's there. Yeah. Hello, Naveed. Hello, Naveed. Hello, Naveed. Hello, and uh, I'd just like to introduce Naveed, who, uh, as well as being one of our uh, top minds here at uh, Glasgow University, also actually um, uh, was the person I matriculated with a long, a long time ago, and and we hung around together for a while at university. But uh, I think I spent too much time in uh, the cafeteria because that's why he's a professor now, and I'm introducing him on Radio Ramadan. How are you? Assalamualaikum. Well, I'm very well, thank you. No, it's nice to be uh, amongst um, you know some. Um, good colleagues from around the UK and um, you know it's always um, good to get different perspectives I think um, so from my perspective I think this is a you know, clearly it's a very topical area um, and I think what I've seen so far is sort of mixed evidence you know there's clearly the doctor's uh, evidence that's mentioned and it looks like there is potentially a trend um, there's also other data that I've seen which is still to be published uh, for example uh, this data from Bradford early data that doesn't show a difference between South Asians and whites. Um, but I think the national data does seem to suggest a difference. So what certainly has happened, though, is that the government have recognised that we need to get to the bottom of this. Is there a difference? Where is the difference? What are the, what are the relevant factors? And, and actually, people already discussed, is it cultural? Is it the fact that South Asians or blacks are actually getting more infections in the first place? And that leads them to get, therefore, you know, you have to get the infection field to get a more severe disease. You know, and that is that cultural, is that social, economic, and I think those are the really you know, relevant points. Or is it that once they, you know, that they're not necessarily getting more infection, although there's some evidence that they are, that they then have a more adverse reaction to that infection? You know, is it because, um, you know, there's something about the virus and genetics that leads that virus to lead to a bigger immune response? Or is it that they've got more less capacity to cope with the immune response because of associated conditions, which was nicely mentioned at the beginning as well. So it's a whole range of things. I think we need a bit more evidence. Um, at the moment, though, I think there's enough there to be worried about and to give some, just just really probably the, what we'll all come to say is, you know, as our community, we just need to just be careful with our lifestyle and take a bit parts of our lifestyle a little bit more seriously, walk a little bit more if we can. You know, eat a little bit better. I know that uh, you know once, but these are difficult things to, to get across to our community. But and and actually, socially distance for the, for the time being is important as well. But again, it's probably a little bit more difficult for some parts of our society which you know live in closer closer um, and more dense populations and bigger households, etc. And the, and I think these are all the issues we've all been thinking about. Very good points. Um, thank you, Professor Naveed. Um, I, there's, there's a lot r running around in my head, but I think, I, you know, we want to make sure we uh, accurately get everybody's idea, ideas behind what's been going on. So um, I, I will be very quick. Um, uh, for example, I um, sent a message to uh, Nicola Sturgeon um, really at the beginning when I noticed that there, uh, first of all, generally there wasn't enough PPE, and then how things were going on at, at the beginning. Um, just when I looked uh, in South Korea, 
people are wearing body suits, proper respirators, etc. And so part of getting the infections for me at that point was uh, related to this, that uh, um, the equipment was not good enough. But I'm going to come back to ask you, because this, this relates to, um, you know, uh, the community uh, in terms of VME. And, and, like, so let's, let's focus more on that. Um, keep it non-political and, and more factual. So yeah. who would Can like to say to one thing? Yeah, no, just one thing. It was something I think, uh, who was it said this? Was it, uh, I'm not sure who it said, but the, the evidence that nationally has been published that the Pakistanis may have a higher risk than Indians and Bangladeshis, um, does fit, there's a concept that people who've got higher risk for certain diseases are going to be at higher risk you know, for having a bad outcome. So we already know that Pakistanis have a higher risk for heart disease than Indians and Bangladeshis from UK data. So it kind of fits. Um, that's the kind of pattern you would ex expect. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I still think we need more data. But it is it, certainly lots of people who are succumbing to this do have risk factors, and um, which we all recognise. And that's why we've got shielding for the very high risk people. Um, but, but I still think we need more evidence. You know. I, you know, the number of deaths, even within doctors, is relatively small. Uh, but, but I think the national data, ITU data, and admissions does look quite compelling. But we need to analyze it properly, be very careful, and then give proper messaging. But it's, um, Professor, um, can, can I um, ask one, one quick thing? that By shielding, um, I remember Italy was saying, and then there were some doctors that I know in the States, they, the aerosol could be, um, you know, in the wards, and in in that respect, they ensured that their staff in Italy said, "Make you know they make sure that uh, um, you know looking at the hospitals that uh, where all the medical staff were fine and did not get sick, they were wearing proper goggles um, and respirators uh, to prevent infection with a with a, what looked like a plastic bodysuit. Um, so it was a very high level." Um, system that they used. Is this being undertaken here? Uh, well, I'm sure some of my colleagues can answer, but and, and generally, probably, you know, in most places, not. No. Okay. Uh, um, I think I got thrown off there. Uh, so uh, good to come back. I think that will be something that Dr. Shazad Neef will probably want to uh, answer. But unfortunately, at the moment, we've got an ad break coming up. So if you want to take that, uh, Dr. Neef, that would be great. But we will be going for an ad break in a couple of minutes. And about we can two, pick that up in about one minute. But is that something you'd know? I think you know a bit more about that. Yeah, the protective equipment has really been a, a kind of hot potato in, in, in terms of um, media coverage and the issues that healthcare workers have been experiencing. Uh, and as countries such as Italy, Spain and China have been finding that uh, with bitter experience, unfortunately, and we don't seem to have learned from them, is that the way to try and minimise uh, the spread of uh, coronavirus is to give your healthcare workers the proper protection so A, they don't become infected, they don't then go on to infect other people and they can continue working to provide healthcare without becoming unwell themselves. Um, we're just going to pick up with Dr. Hanif, if that's okay. Um, Dr. Hanif, uh, you were talking about, uh, I believe, 
PPE, uh, if you want to just carry on. Um, yeah, Naveen, thanks. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, the, yeah the personal protective equipment, uh, as most people have probably seen, because it's got so much coverage in the news and seems to, to kind of come up every day, uh, has, has been very problematic for healthcare workers uh, that are dealing with uh, coronavirus on a daily basis. Uh, just to put it into a bit of context, there was a survey done of 16,000 doctors just very recently uh, and out of, the, out of that survey it transpired that 65% of the doctors said they didn't feel adequately protected with the equipment that they'd been given uh, and 55% of GPs surveyed had to buy their own protective equipment. Uh, now surely this can't be right in a uh, what we term, and I'll put this in inverted commas, a kind of first world country uh, when we can't even meet World Health Organization standards that have been set out for protective equipment for healthcare staff around the world. Now, what we do have to remember is that the World Health Organization standards are for all countries in the world, regardless of capability uh, and economic might. Uh, we are a G7 country uh, and we're not even meeting the minimum standards laid out by uh, WHO for the whole planet uh, and it's no wonder um, and, and I suppose there needs to be discussion as to why this is the case. The UK now has a second highest number of deaths anywhere in the world due to coronavirus. Clearly the strategy at whatever level is not working as well as it should be and uh, healthcare workers uh, are feeling uh, that they're not adequately protected with almost a third saying that they're in the survey, saying that they're suffering from stress, burnout, mental health issues caused by the stress over dealing with the um, coronavirus without adequate protection. Uh, so. But do you think that, that um, I mean, that, I suppose, affects all doctors from whatever racial background you are? Do you think there's any sort of specific relation to BAME doctors? I've got to say this again, black, Asian and minority ethnic uh, doctors do you think that there's any uh, there's anything specific towards them in this situation or do you think this yeah. just affects all doctors no matter who you are well i think it probably affects all healthcare workers uh, and it's interesting you brought up the kind of bame healthcare workers same um, issue because uh, overall uh, in the uk 21% of healthcare workers are from a bame background uh, but the deaths that have been reported, and I think it's pretty obvious to everybody who sees the photos and the news of the healthcare workers that unfortunately have, have, have lost their lives. 64% of nurse and support staff who have died are from a BAME background, and 95% of doctors and dentists who have died are from a BAME background. Uh, so I don't think I think the PPE is is a problem for all. Uh, so I don't think a lack of PPE would be specifically contributed to the higher rate of deaths amongst um, BAME healthcare workers, but I think it's pro contributing generally to the higher higher um, risk of contracting it for all healthcare workers. Absolutely, and and that's the biggest point. Um, and I think we can, I mean, certainly say this, and it's trying to get the government on board, especially here in Scotland, is pushing towards. Um, Nicola Sturgeon to to do a lot more, and you know if you guys can't say it officially, we certainly can. Um, and uh, if I could ask uh, Dr. Farouk um, to join in and tell us about what he's go been going through in England, Dr. Farouk, awesome Farouk, if he's still there. 
okay, we, we might now have Dr. Farouk. Um, we'll go back to Dr. Uh, Professor Sartre. No, I think he's on mute. I think Asim's there. But uh, Asim, are you on mute? Maybe you just need to unmute your... Yeah. That's okay. Dr. Farouk, you're back now. Yeah, can you hear me, guys? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, lovely. Good. Thank, thanks, for, uh, thanks for bringing me in. Um, actually, um, just hot off the hot off the presses, I um, did attend today um, a webinar which was run by people such as Nikki Kanani, who's the medical director for primary care, alongside Chand Nagpal, uh, the BMA, um, and the specific topic was addressing what can we actually now do to protect the BME healthcare workers because I think we, you know, everyone knows now that we have definitely got a problem. You know, you've mentioned with the numbers that there's no doubt that yes, we know there are, we have got many healthcare workers who are BME, but still the numbers who are dying are much higher. So ultimately, they too mentioned about this thing about their mental health, the anxiety that is creating now that we're worried that we are not being adequately uh, supported and protected. Um, and they were, you know, bringing it down to those two areas, which are protection, which again, we've, we've already touched a little bit on. But the other thing, which is going to be now vital, is that everybody needs to now have a health risk, a risk assessment regarding your likelihood of you contracting this and you being thrown in the front line, you know, and we all need to now, with all our staff, you know, need to go through this risk assessment and they are actually have already put together a practical tool, which uh, I think uh, Professor Kamlish Conti of Leicester has also had a big part in uh, putting this together. And basically, you know, you will be asked certain questions starting off with your age and then um, the ethnicity uh, followed by any comorbidities you might have such as high, high blood pressure, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, kidney disease. Um, also they will ask you um, whether you're going to be working in the community or hospital based and also whether you're going to be uh, working in an aerosol generating uh, environment or not. So with all of that, they're going to basically be able to stratify your risk of being in the front line as a healthcare worker, you know, because up until this point, when things were absolutely going crazy, you know, we were all just trying to step up to the mark and say, look, we, we were just running into, you know, help. And it's a bit like, you know, we all know from the basics of ABCs and, uh, you know, when we're doing CPR, you have to do your own risks first before you run into the situation to help others and I think that wasn't being adequately done um, and I think now um, before we throw ourselves in the front line that that risk assessment must be done so I don't know if everyone it should agrees have been on that done one. already shouldn't it yeah should have been yeah. done way before now but it's only just now starting to come out um, yeah. now yeah. if it if it obviously does come out that somebody's in a high risk category then how, how do we then uh, modify their risks. I mean, the first thing is we have to use technology. Now, one thing, hopefully, if everyone's seen it as a GP, uh, I'm sure it's happening in Scotland as well as uh, 
in England that we've, we've massively increased the use of technology in general practice. You know, you, you're doing a lot of remote consultations, you're using video consultations. I mean, I'd never really used Zoom before, but now I'm an avid user of Zoom and Microsoft Teams and, uh, you know, and it's really revolutionized how staff can really still, and you've probably found that actually 90% of conservation, you can do it quite happily remotely, you know. So I think technology is going to be, have to be vital. Um, but then there are still some aspects where you are going to have to be directly in the front line. Um, but I think in those cases, I mean, again, I don't know if, if people are doing this, but if we're using protective equipment, you need to protect uh, the patient should be wearing some masks and protective equipment alongside you wearing some masks, protective equipment, and visors. So that's going to be vitally important. Uh, another factor that came up was what about our pharmacists? We know our pharmacists, uh, a lot of them in the BME population, they can't work remotely. You can't obviously dispense medication remotely. Um, so they've had to come up with different ways. Now, for them, they're having to be extra careful with social distancing. They're having to form queues and having a one-in, one-out policy. Okay, sorry to interrupt. We're, we're going to have a, a break at uh, 11.55, so still a bit of time, but I, I am thinking that we need to bring everybody in as well. Um, yes. Professors, uh, if you could um, come in on some of the points. See, my, my, my largest issue, yes, sure, technology is... Um, you know, at the forefront, it's about time that the NHS starts using a lot more of it to, to be safer. That is being done. Great. But what's not being done is, you know, the issue is having the right PPE. And these shields, I, I know people who are making the shields, but, but they're not working. Um, it needs to, I think, it needs to be even more, and we need to listen to what they said, that, it you know, use goggles, use proper um sealed respirator systems, if not get them. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I think, you know, part of, the point, part of the problem is we're learning lots of different things about this virus, the pandemic, and there's lots of unanswered questions. But certainly we do know that social distancing clearly does work. We've seen it. That good PPE does work. We've seen it. Um, you know, the, um, without becoming political, we were as a nation, a bit behind some others, so we have to step up to the mark. But certainly what we're very good at in the UK is collecting fantastic data. So I think over the next uh, month or so, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm connected to lots of relevant colleagues and there's brilliant people working on these issues, we will have better, as as, as already been said, risk scores to try and determine who is the highest risk. Um, and therefore, we could perhaps up the quality of PPE for those individuals or put them in different roles to minimise their risk you know that's in terms of health professionals um we'll also get better evidence on you know clarifying which ethnic groups are at highest risk is it clearly the pakistanis black Afro caribbeans uh you know bangladeshis which it looks like thus far but we need a little bit of evidence and also what the factors are causing this is it that they're also getting more infections to begin with and they have a worse reaction and what can they do most importantly to reduce that risk going forward you know should we have a second wave and a third wave and at the same time, um, as we all know, there's lots of brilliant trials going on, so hopefully we'll get some potential treatments that at least have some kind of... Um, Prof Professor Naveed, if I can ask, ask you about a specific question, and I know that you've done some work on this, and people are asking this uh, quite a lot. We've even had questions 
phoned in while we've been on the show, uh, and they're asking about vitamin D supplementation mm-hmm. and what people are saying. And there's a there's a chap that comes on the internet, and there's all sorts of things happening. Uh, uh, he's a I think he's a, a senior nurse who does lots of internet uh, broadcasts daily. And they're saying, well, vitamin D supplementation must have something to do with this. You know, all these BAME doctors are dying. They've clearly got darker skin. They don't uh, uh, synthesize vitamin D as readily as white people do. This must be the answer. I know you've done some work on this. Yeah, What's know, your take the, on this? Yeah, I know. For the last 20 years, we we thought vitamin D was the, the, you know, was the cause behind, low vitamin D cause behind cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hypertension, heart failure, rheumatoid arthritis. We've done all those trials and they've all been completely negative. Um, the one trial that area that there is some evidence is acute respiratory infection. So that's kind of relevant, but it wasn't one big trial. It was a multitude of about 25 trials and 11,000 patients, and it wasn't clear cut to me. What we've looked at, we've looked at early UK biobank data, which is a paper coming out uh, in a journal. and. They, 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 they measured 10 years before the COVID pandemic started vitamin D levels in 500,000 people. And we've had a quick look at initially, and we do not see a strong relationship between vitamin D. Um, we, we, see slightly high, we see higher risk of infections in, in ethnic um, minority communities, BAME communities, yes. But the vitamin D levels do not explain that risk in any form or shape whatsoever. So this caveats to it, but... Based on that evidence, I'm not saying it's definitely not the answer, but I would be very surprised if it was the answer. Um, I think what people should do, you know, if they're worried, make sure they, you know, when the sun has been shining for the last few days, just get out in the sun, you know, for you know, yeah. 20, 30 minutes, and you'll get enough vitamin D that you need. And so, and, and, so people who are, so people who are sending all these internet stories around WhatsApp saying, look. You've got to get your vitamin D tablets. You've got to get zinc tablets. You've got to get vitamin C. Yeah, you've no, got. In fact, I'm I'm having people sending uh, things and saying you've got to take intravenous vitamin C. That's vitamin C put into the veins. Yeah, no, Other people are saying, you know, what is this complete nonsense yes, or what? Is. What would you complete, really? It's not. I mean, there is tiny bits of evidence if you eat a bit more vitamin c it might it might shorten the length of a cold but that's then if you extrapolate that to a novel virus causing a novel type of flu we've not you know there's no evidence for that so most of that stuff is nonsense the key things are eat a balanced diet be as active as you possibly can you know clearly it's ramadan at the moment but anyway but I, you know outside of it eat a balanced diet be active and get out in the sun, you know, get in the daylight for half an hour when you walk, you'll get enough vitamin D. And giving false reassurance where we don't have evidence can cause harm, you know. So I think we've got to be very, very careful and provide, we've got to do the evidence. If people really believe the vitamin D story, we should be doing a trial to prove it, yes or no. I'd be surprised if it showed a benefit, but we have to do the trials. That's the only way to do it. It's the same way that Trump was going on about hydroxychloroquine before he had the evidence in there. Now the evidence suggests it's not beneficial, might actually cause harm. So be very careful what you suggest and talk to the data that we have. Otherwise, you're potentially saying the wrong things and giving people false reassurance. So what so I'm going to always s- ask your doctors. Yeah. Ask your doctors, please, well, whoever's listening. I've got to say, uh, you've heard it on Radio Ramadan from uh, a professor of biochemistry here in Glasgow University that all these extra supplementations that people are taking really aren't going to help. And that common sense ideas, eating a balanced diet, having sunshine, 
these are having the regular exercise. These are basically the things that we should all be doing. Uh, so you've heard it here on Radio Ramadan, and all those people that are sending me requests for hydroxychloroquine, vitamin C, intravenous vitamin C, vitamin D supplementation, you name it, uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no, the dev, I mean, I'm not saying something might come up, but we just don't have it. So don't, don't t- and the, the chances are none of those things will work. So do the things that we do know work, you know, lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle. Sadly, it's hard, you know, but that's the bottom line for the moment. I don't know what my colleagues think, you know, other colleagues, on the, I'd be love to hear their opinions as well. Yeah, no, I think um, uh, I think Professor Sattar is exactly correct. And in fact, it's a timely thing. And he's, I think perhaps he was referring to the paper that has come out in the past couple of days from the Oxford Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine about vitamin D that in the short, quick study that they've done, they found no clinical evidence uh, that vitamin D has any beneficial effect uh, in reducing or preventing COVID-19 infections. Um, so, I mean, in general health, there may be some benefit in taking vitamin D, but certainly not specifically for, for coronavirus, COVID-19. So, yeah, no, I think um, it's becoming increasingly apparent that the vitamin D WhatsApp messages doing the rounds along with everything, <laughs> pretty much everything else, is not based on any evidence at all. Dr. Farouk, could you add uh, your own thoughts? Yes. Um, I I mean, we've said about the WhatsApps, and I think, you know, hopefully you guys have seen how dangerous some of these WhatsApp claims can be, um, you know, and it was really a result of this that I had to start setting things up like a YouTube channel where I could try to educate the public, and I hope we can utilize things like this and, you know, influences in our Muslim and Asian community to, uh, because unfortunately it seems to be strange that the, the the BME population loves to, you know, have these false WhatsApps flying around so quickly without really justifying the evidence. Um, so I think it, it's really uh, important that things like this um, are being done. Um, so, yeah, um, I just wanted to also mention that uh, regarding London, um, you know, um, well, London, Birmingham, um, obviously, these are the two highest cities with the infections. Um, the lowest city is Norwich. Um, and, you know, there, there's bound to be a link there with the population, uh, including the BME population itself. Um, I don't know how things are looking in your two main cities, Glasgow, Edinburgh, about uh, the numbers. Uh, how, how are we all looking? up there at the moment. Interestingly, the Scottish government, uh, as far as I know, has not published data up here um, giving the BME uh, numbers in Scotland. Uh, so we're trying to get those figures um, at the moment. So we're unsure of Scotland-specific figures for um, deaths amongst the BME population compared to, to other populations. So it will be interesting to see that. Uh, but I wonder also, just mentioning London and Birmingham, whether it's the other way around, whether the fact that these two cities have been uh, more adversely affected than anywhere else, which may explain the higher BME count because of the higher population, or whether it's because there's more BME living there that's caused the higher number. So is yeah. it one or the other? So it may actually be yeah. interesting to, yeah. to see uh, what, what, what's I mean, the cause, what's the effect. 
absolutely. And what we do know in Birmingham, for instance, is that they do have a very high BME population, which is 42%. However, the death rate has been 64% regarding uh, death. So, so it's you know, definitely a big factor there. So what uh, I have heard about in Birmingham is that we know there was going to be a national inquiry by the government into this whole thing, but national inquiries, we, we know, can take a while. And then apparently when details of who would be involved in this and who was chosen was seemed a bit controversial. controversial. So therefore, the Birmingham NHS Trust has decided that they would do a much quicker uh, analysis of what's going on <laughs> and they were going to use the uh, Birmingham Trust data with uh, admissions, mortality, as well as combined data from the Birmingham City Council, um, uh, talking about social uh, data as well. Um, and you know, I was looking at an article where um, a nephrologist in Birmingham, uh, Dr. Sharif, he he seemed to think when it all comes together, it may well be factors such as social um, um, and the other factors which I talked about when I mentioned the, these, you know, cultural, uh, socio-economic may be a massive factor because if you take into account occupationally, the BME population, we tend to work in the key workers, transport and retail sector as well. If you look at overcrowding, we know that 30% of the Bengali population live in overcrowding. We know 15% of African and Pakistani people live in overcrowded situations versus only 2% of the white population. Um, and obviously the hotspot where everything started was London and Birmingham. Um, so who knows, it may just be demographics and socioeconomic factors yeah. as to why the BMA population rather than genetics. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and also one of the factors is not just getting the infection, it might be that people are getting exposed to more virus because the people living closer together. So viral load may be a factor as well. So there's lots of things to, un, you know, to unpick at the moment, it really is. Yeah, that's a very good point. High-density high areas in New York are higher impacted, and um, it mirrors exactly what you're all saying in terms of Birmingham and London. Um, and culturally, what I noticed, um, I'm going to be very brief as well, that looking at how people are shopping um, in some of the Asian uh, and other ethnicity communities, um, there wasn't distancing, there wasn't a good level of safe distancing at all. Um, and, and that's so that's what I've noticed. Um, we have about two more minutes, so gents, if you'd like to um, come in and, and talk about perhaps a cultural side of things. Yeah, I think um, with the Asian uh, BME population, specifically the Asian population, we know that it's a kind of multi-family, multi-generational households. And that will inevitably increase the transmission rates, uh, even in lockdown, which, of course, is your household locking down. Mm -hmm. If there are several generations living in that uh, household, uh, the risk of uh, bringing in COVID and maybe some of the older um, members of the, the family becoming infected, of course, are, are, are higher than perhaps uh, a more isolated family unit. Uh, so that certainly may be playing some role in it. Um, as I say, at the moment, it's all kind of, guesswork and trying to work out potentially the socioeconomic factors, the uh, way that ethnic minorities are, are, 
living and, and working, uh, whether any of these factors are playing a role in it or not, but they'll probably be retrospectively uh, in the fullness of time that we may come to what the conclusion is as to what's causing this. But, uh, I don't know what everyone else thinks. No, no, you, you got it perfectly correct, uh, Shazad. I mean, I think there's lots of issues to look at, but hopefully there will be a silver lining. I mean, I think it's going to be tough. The economy, you know, is going to take a big battery. But one thing that probably needs to come out of this is that we do need to emphasize um, better activity within our communities and lifestyle and to try and prevent people getting diabetes because that might be a, a bigger factor. Absolutely. But that's for the future. Abdul had a question. Abdul, yeah. are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks. Assalamualaikum, uh, brothers. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, yeah, I was actually, one thing uh, was concerning me, um, um, just a quick answer, maybe, uh, Professor uh, Naveed. Uh, is, am I right in thinking that the, the Army are getting trained to actually test frontline workers for now? Is that right? I think the army are already involved in some places. They are, you know, exactly being used in a variety of ways. One of which is helping testing. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I don't know what this happening. Should you know, like sure. the same thing as well. But that's definitely happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the reason was was that uh, I wanted to know, like, so if if the actual tests were getting done properly, because um, I, I I was reading somewhere that the swab really has to go quite far. Up the nose. Could could you just uh, maybe elaborate on that, maybe Dr. Shazad, as to how you actually have to test? Yeah. So the the test has to be done. Uh, you're absolutely right. That it is quite invasive when when the test is done. And it's funny you say that because um, I was having a chat with one of my uh, doctor colleagues who had some symptoms and went to get the test done, not by the army, but uh, by uh, one of the, another healthcare worker. Uh, and he felt that it just uh, he didn't really feel it at all. Felt the test hadn't been done properly. Came back negative. Then went had it done again, and it uh, came back positive. So it was it's interesting um, that, that you bring that up in terms of training to actually take the uh, to be able to administer the test properly. Um, but I think the, the the reason for that probably is the the speed with which the the coronavirus and COVID has, has uh, really taken over the country. And I suspect in a lot of areas that uh, uh, the proper training that uh, staff would normally get to be able to to do these tests and uh, administer this health care work has probably okay. been accelerated. And, of course, there may be potential uh, gaps in that. And that may well be an isolated incident, but it's just one anecdote that, that I've heard about. Sure. Uh, Doctor, also, can, can I, just for the, the, the listeners uh, listening at home just now, what is it exactly that you, that you can't get from the bottom of the nose possibly that is way above maybe this, like the sinus area? So what is it you're actually looking for so you can get a swab? Okay. Oh, hello? Hello? We're all here. I think it's just a difficult question. Everybody's sitting behind the couch, I think, now. <laughs> no, no, I mean, no, you know, I think the more important question, I mean, these tests are, the, the good thing is, you know, Glasgow clearly has one of the centres in our university has set up, um, and the numbers are wrapping up. So the, the capacity has increased. We just need to work out how to get more people to get the tests to, Mm. to help the flow of the community and help get people back to work or whatever, or particularly when the lockdown starts to ease, we need more testing. 
But the yeah. other test that we're really waiting for is the test to see if people had the, had the virus and they didn't know about it, or yeah. you know. And that I'm 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 hoping some of those tests are robust. Um, one company called Roche will just release one, and it's it's very sensitive specific. But actually, you know, we need to do those testings because um, that sure. that would really really help the community. I think. Right, Dr. Shazad. Sorry, sorry, we come in there. Well, Sorry. I was just going to, there was one question I wanted to ask because um, uh, the professor was asking, saying something about about uh, having these uh, studies done and actually getting some proper evidence. And um, the other uh, doctors would also kind of probably recognize this, but it seems as if in the last few weeks, you know, uh, a lie or false information, false news, uh, you know, seems to zip around the world three or four times and whereas actual good studied information seems to kind of crawl along like a tortoise uh, and yet these lies go around like you know uh, at sort of hyperspeed um, and all the kind of things that we've been hearing um, what do you what do you all make of that what do you think of that do you find that frustrating or uh, is that something that, that you found a problem yourself uh, in your everyday work, uh, any of you? What, what do you feel? I think it's, I think it's inevitable uh, when you have uh, periods of high stress like this uh, that people will latch on to bits of knowledge or um, partial information, draw some conclusions, and then it kind of spreads around. And because again, the speed with which this virus has taken over, the changes in our day-to-day -day existence uh, all around the world, that people are panicking and trying to latch on to any kind of thing that they feel may protect them. So in some ways, that's a natural reaction. Uh, but in other ways, I, sus I suspect there probably has been um, a lack of um, vetting of proper information, which I suppose is very difficult to do in social media, so you can't really uh, apportion the blame in any organisation or any government for being able to control that. Uh, and I, sus I suspect they have tried their best in the daily briefings to try and counter uh, some of the misinformation that's going around uh, online. Uh, but what I would say to people, especially in our community, is um, look at it with a critical eye. Um, if, it, if it sounds as if it doesn't ring true, it likely does not. Uh, look for official information or seek advice from um, healthcare professionals if there's any doubt before before doing anything. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is, you know, I'm involved in one of the journals and Big, you know, one of the cardiovascular journals called Circulation, and we've been flooded with papers about COVID, and most of them are not very good. Some of them are fantastic, but they're very few. So, um, as Shazad said, there's a there's an absolute, you know, people are latching onto anything because they want to find something that gives them you know, some hope. Ah, somebody's discovered a, a new cure or whatever. But actually, much of the evidence at the moment is really, really, really weak. So. We do need better evidence. The government have taken the ethnic minority issue seriously. They have put money in their pocket. They're going to get better evidence very, very quickly, I think, um, to give us all of the you know answers to some of the questions. But the big this but and the big thing that people really do need to recognise is still lots of unknowns about this virus. We don't know how it causes the disease that it does. We've got some ideas. We don't know how infectious it is, how you know, how are people getting the infection? Is it mostly respiratory or is it through touching we don't know that at all we don't know people you know will get infection again so there's tons we don't know at the moment and that for that reason and also we don't know if a vaccine will definitely work so people need to take certain things seriously 
and not think that it's not going to happen to them because that's when you know potentially things could happen and lifestyle does become important we do need to try and improve our lifestyle to minimize our risk although it is hard to do that i recognize particularly yeah. uh, can i come in a wee second yeah absolutely yeah um i was going to say uh, dr shad you're obviously uh probably near and run about glasgow obviously by your accent and uh, yeah, right. we, we touched on like community and whatnot. And just, just for the, the listeners out there, you, you mentioned, uh, one of the brothers mentioned social distancing. Now, I know our community is kind of, sometimes it's, it's an Asian thing to be kind of quite close and hug each other and shake the hand and whatnot. So obviously this is, goes against all our kind of etiquette. So I was wondering if, for the, how to explain to the listeners out there the reason why we must social distance because obviously we go to some of these supermarkets and we see everybody picking up the veg right beside each other standing beside each other so mm -hmm. could you explain to them as to why it is very important and the reason why it is to actually socially distance yeah that's a that's a very good uh, really good uh, point there so social distancing um is being brought in because of the way that the virus is perceived to to spread and it's to minimise the risk of people transmitting it to each other. And you're absolutely right with the Asian community, as with every community, hugging, being close to people, interacting with people is what we've been brought up with for our whole life. So this big change that's happened now uh, it certainly has been uh, difficult for many communities, and especially within uh, the, the Muslim community around Ramadan, when it's most natural to get together for iftar and, and, and so forth. So the social distancing is to maintain a certain distance away, uh, because initially it was thought that it was, it was mainly spread by droplets. So if people are coughing, uh, the droplets can travel a certain distance before they generally um, kind of fall onto the ground. Uh, and it's to minimise the risk of that droplet going from person to person uh, and also the fact that they tell you to wash your hands uh, frequently is to stop touching surfaces which the virus is on and then uh, infecting yourself. Uh, but there is some increasing evidence uh, that there may be some uh, element of airborne um, element to it as well. Uh, a study from Finland has shown that it, so somebody's been coughing perhaps even speaking uh, loudly, uh, it may create an, a, a, a kind of little virus cloud for a period Absolutely. of time. And, and as Naveed says, that we just don't know enough about this virus. Uh, and uh, I, I come back to, in full circle to the point about the protective equipment for healthcare workers, which is if we don't know enough about a virus, uh, then we can't be definitive as to exactly how it's spread. And until we can't be definitive, we must err in the side of caution, and that goes for social distancing, people sticking to the stay at home, uh, protect the NHS, etc., etc., which has been which has been um, advice given by the government. These are all very important steps to take, uh, because we don't know if there's a treatment around the corner. We don't know if there's a vaccine uh, coming down 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 the road, and how long it's going to take to get to that stage. So the best way we can protect ourselves is to minimise the risk of actually contracting um, COVID in the first place. And all these steps are in place to try and um, try and uh, prevent the, the spread of it. Sure. Yep. Um, I was going to actually... Um, uh, I, I know there's uh, been a lot of talk today about obesity uh, and they think that obesity may have some factors in it. And uh, I wonder if uh, the professor could maybe comment on that and, and whether he feels that that's a factor, especially 
since we're talking about the um, black and Asian and uh, minority ethnic community, because obviously that's an issue as well. Yeah. Uh, no, do you have anything to say there? No, no, this is a tough issue to talk about, you know, because yeah, it's, yeah, it's a tough issue. But the answer is, of all the risk factors that I'm familiar with, it's probably the one where it's probably the clearest evidence there is a link. Um, um, so clearly, in general, not just talking about the BAMA communities, but in general, the more overweight you are in anybody in our, you know, in, in, in the world, the more overweight or obese you are, the higher your risk of having a more critical illness with COVID-19 and that might be through a number of mechanisms one is that you know it might be that um, it's partly to do with overcrowding and social deprivation you know uh, but it could also be that we know that for example lung function isn't as good in people who are overweight or obese we also know that your pump your heart function isn't as good um, so you're not able to deliver the oxygen around to your tissues as much um, we also know the blood is stick sticker you know, it's thicker um, in people who are overweight or obese, and that part of the bad thing that this virus does, particularly when the immune hit happens, it increases the thickness of the body even more. So if it's thick to begin with, it's more likely to become too thick as a result of the virus. And and there are other mechanisms. We also know that, of course, obesity leads to diabetes, and that's important because high sugar levels can potentially worsen infection and the way your body moves fuels around is really important to how to fight an infection. And if you've got um, a higher risk for diabetes or diabetes, you're maybe not as efficient to fight to help the immune system work in a more efficient way. So there's multiple reasons why being overweight or obese might actually not be so good for you when you, you know, when you get the infection. It might lead to worse outcomes. Um, but that's not to say that everybody's going to. It's going to happen to everybody. Um, but Again, that's why I'm probably, I'm my, you know, one of the things I keep talking about is lifestyle. And it's something that I think the government should need to invest more in to help people lead healthy lifestyles. It's not easy to lead healthy lifestyles. For some people, you know. I'm not going to give people, anybody a hard time. We just need to help each other um, to, you know, prove activity, better diets, and um, do it as a community. And, and I think it's a brilliant, uh, you know, what you're saying is trying to help us understand um, that, you know, obesity is, is one of the many factors, and that's why it's so important to be careful, to stay safe, and take, you know, measured precautions as well. Um, and, you know, there's been hints. Of, I looked at what's coming out from the FDA-approved site, so, this, you know, from the CDC in America, and, they were um, indicating that uh, there is perhaps contagion that's in aerosol format. And it's as if we're slightly always behind in the UK in terms of what they're saying uh, or what they find out, whether it's in Italy or in uh, America. Maybe that's something that needs to be done a bit more. Um, and I appreciate that, uh, what you're saying, Professor, that for it to be uh, true validity, it needs to be stamped by um, you know, people like the CDC in terms of statistically significant. But we're not there yet because it's impossible to do that with you know from, from all this. Uh, uh, the, it's just going so fast, so it's all, almost impossible to do that. But certainly, it's very contagious. To the point that um, you know, there's some articles or examples talking about the aerosol 
part of it that it could be uh, in the air for a couple hours. Reuters came up with a, um, a balanced uh, uh, review as well. Um, have you seen more on that, Professor? No, I haven't. Uh, to be honest, I haven't. But um, as you see, the evidence is going really fast. Having said that, I think certainly in the UK and many other probably parts of the world, the evidence is getting stronger because now that sadly we have more people who have had bad outcomes, we've now got better power to look at things and predictors and all these things. So I think in the next few weeks we're going to have some really big papers with big, big numbers properly analysed to give us some better truths of risks and, and predictors. And the only thing I would say to listeners out there at this moment in time, the link between obesity and fitness is on associated factors makes me think that if people are able at the moment, I know it's you know it's difficult with with Ramadan, but even after you know after Ramadan, if they can just increase their activity by even by walking an extra five ten minutes a day, just to get the lungs a bit fitter, the heart a bit fitter, and they can maybe cut out one or two snacks that they used to you know they like one less biscuit you know or uh, move away from sugary drinks and maybe even lose two, three kilograms and just get a little bit fitter, that might actually help them should they have the infection. We just don't know, but certainly it will, know, it will do no harm. And it, those are the kind of small things that people can, realistic goals that they can do for themselves and for their family that might protect them in some small way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I just wanted to come in there. Yeah, um, I mean, just to clarify, I, I take it we're nowhere near a vaccine yet. Yeah. Anyone? Just a yes or no? No, no. They have. They're testing them. They're they're testing several. They're testing probably about thirty or forty vaccines around the world. Um, So I I think the um, Shazad maybe or Asim. I think there's the Oxford trial. They said they will give their early reports in June or July. I think um, for their vaccine. Yeah, no, th- yeah, that's exactly correct. I th- there's uh, multiple vaccines being developed all around the world at the moment. In Oxford, one, there's one in Cambridge. There's there's quite a few in the UK already, and Nabeed uh, is exactly correct that I think they're expecting to get very preliminary results uh, in about June or July. Uh, but uh, as I say, it's a fast-moving field with COVID. Uh, there's some questions about what the antibody response is. There's questions about how long the antibody response will will stay for. Uh, which is all still to be clarified. Uh, so we are hopeful that there's a vaccine uh, on the way, uh, and previous um, studies with viruses would suggest that that is entirely possible. But as I say, at this moment in time, I don't think we could be sure of what the time scale is. Uh, so the key thing for, mm-hmm. for everybody is to try and uh, reduce the transmission of the virus, try and reduce the risk of them getting it, and hopefully there's a vaccine um, in due course which will then and give added protection to everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and, and, and will this vaccine uh, protect us from getting it in the future? Will, will that make us immune to the, to the infection? Do you know? Is that what's well, going to be? Or, that, no? That's the question about the antibody response because uh, there is some uh, questions about, uh, I think the, the, there's two or three strains of this coronavirus at the moment, uh, which there's one that's a bit more virulent, there's one that's a bit less virulent, uh, one puts slightly different antibodies to the other, as far as I can see in the literature. Uh, so there, there are certainly some challenges in vaccine development, because if you remember 
So influenza, we've had about 100 years to study influenza and we get the vaccine every year, the flu vaccine to, to uh, minimise the risk of contracting it. We've only known about this specific virus for about three or four months. Yeah. So everything is happening at lightning speed just now. Uh, and unfortunately, when stuff happens at lightning speed, uh, you sometimes have to go back and revise and correct stuff. So um, uh, th- there is certainly the potential for a vaccine, but I would suggest realistically, um, listening to the experts, it's probably at least um, between 8 and 12 months away at a minimum, maybe up wow. to 18 months before we get it. Yeah, they, 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 I mean, they're hopeful, but they don't want us to get too excited in case it doesn't happen. But clearly the technology we have to be, uh, people have to be as far better now than it ever was. And um, certainly one of the drug companies is optimistic that Oxidol vaccine will, will bear fruit because they're ready to ramp up the production. But I think we've just got to be a little bit cautious because it may not happen. If we, if we put all our hopes in the vaccine, it may not happen. So we might have to change the way we live for a period of time. Yeah. I, I wish we'd make a decision on masks or not. I wish we'd done a trial on masks. We could have done a UK trial, actually, but... I think that time has passed because we're still yeah. not sure, even though other countries are starting to use masks. Doctor, maybe just finally, my last question. And so, if you're going out shopping, what's your procedure with regards to your personal protection and your family? Well, I, I, I personally, when I go out shopping, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously just go myself, but uh, I try to go to a shop which has got a bit more space, but. You know, I do wear gloves, and I and I and the last two times I have worn a mask, to be honest. But that doesn't just protect; it's probably protecting others more than it's protecting me. Yeah. Um, and but I don't. I'd be interested what Shazad and Asim's view that masks are. I mean, we don't have the definitive evidence, but I don't see how they could do harm. I mean, maybe they benefit my feeling, but interested what they. What, yeah, no, completely agree, uh, Navid. I think um, just from a purely kind of common sense point of view, I think the masks for the public would be there to stop transmission, uh, which is the, the, the method that um, uh, would be quite useful in reducing the, the spread of it. Uh, and when it comes to things like shopping and people being in a closed environment relatively, I think people wearing masks would certainly, masks and gloves uh, as they're shopping would certainly be beneficial. Uh, but of course, the, the evidence um, is is it's not been proven with any big studies about it yet. I suspect, which is why the the government hasn't recommended it. Yeah, um, Doctor Farouk, ask him how. What did you What did you think of uh, What do you think about that? I, I must admit, I um, I've always thought that South Koreans seem to have a better job of containing the virus and. Their chief medical officer said, "Look, everybody should be wearing masks." So I'm that that's good enough for me. <laughs> what do you yeah, think? No, I, I I agree, I agree, and uh, and I think you know if you know you wear a mask, other people wear a mask, then of course you have got that minimum chance of it being passed as a result. Um, now I think the main things that are vital, which we haven't really quite mentioned, is that. For health professionals, it's important that we are getting the N95 FFP3 fit masks when we are directly on the front line. And I think this has probably been the big issue. Um, I remember I had a, a patient who I had to admit, and the ambulance people came to pick the patient up, and they were just wearing the basic, simple surgical masks. Um, you know. And, and then when I speak to my colleagues who are working on the front line, yeah, they're not being given the proper FFP3s 
Um, so I think, you know, uh, you know, I think we've got to really make sure that. And for me personally, I thought the only way was to make sure I had to buy it myself. And I'm sure I've heard that story everywhere. You know, just buy it yourself because you've got no guarantees that you are going to get the correct equipment if you rely on the health service completely. And it's a shame. But I think if you want to protect yourself, you've got to buy it yourself, really, haven't you? You know. Absolutely. Dr. Farouk, um, I'm going to add, and I'm going to quote from the British Medical Journal. Um, they concluded in their study that uh, the use of cloth mask um, wasn't recommended. Um, there's a difference because it, it, it retains the moisture. Uh, so, you know, just so that the viewers know, there's a difference between surgical mask, masks and cloth masks. Cloth masks don't work as well. And, uh, you know, we're not saying go out and get PPEs because PPEs are really needed. The, the N95s are truly needed for frontline. And COVID patients, uh, certainly we've seen uh, there should be really, in essence, being uh, given an N95 as well if it was available so that they can uh, not be spreading it to, to other doctors and other people. Um, and if anybody saw from Italy, the patients were in bubbles, and that was to protect everybody in, in the intensive care unit. Um, so... If I hand it back over to Dr. Farouk, because, um, you know, I think it, yeah. it's... Clear. No, no, I think, I think that's true. There is one other thing I just want to bring up again, is that um, um, we heard a lot about it almost two weeks ago in America, and I'm not talking about injecting disinfected new veins. I'm talking about uh, uh, remdesivir, um, and it's all going to be quiet again in the last couple of weeks about remdesivir, but it seemed to be evidence, um, you know, but from what I understood, that, that drug was originally used for the Ebola and was found to be ineffective. Um, so I don't know if anyone knows more about remdesivir and the, the trials on that at the moment. I think it was uh, mainly found to be effective for patients already quite uh, unwell with it in intensive care and it reduced the duration of the severe illness by a couple of days. Uh, was the, the finding, but you're absolutely right. It seems to have gone a bit quiet on that front. Uh, with um, Although it has been approved in the US, the FDA has fast-tracked it and approved it for use in the United States. But uh, I think certain different antivirals have been used in different parts of the world um, during this um, uh, pandemic yeah. uh, to some effect or another. Uh, I don't think there's a, there's a kind of holy grail or panacea of treatment that's, that's, that's been shown to be effective all the time. Um, right. yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously in the UK we have got what's called the recovery trial where they're going to try a whole variety of different things and compare it together. Um, so hopefully when that trial comes out, we'll have a bit more data on some other things we can use, and uh, that'll be definitive, I'm sure. Um, we've uh, That's been an absolutely fantastic show. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to all three of you and giving your views, and I think the listeners have uh, really taken away a lot of um, uh, up-to-date and factual knowledge that I think we're going to be able to use. If it's okay, we've got about three or four minutes left, and I was wondering if um, each of you could just give us something that you would like the listeners to take away um, from this and, you know, 
if if we do go over time, just like to thank all of you uh, for coming on, as well as my presenters, uh, Niazbay and Abdulaziz. But if I could get the some last minute uh, messages for the listeners out there, that would be fantastic. Uh, just maybe start with the professor and then Dr. Anif and Dr. Farouk. That would be great. Yeah, I know. I think we've said it all, but to me, it's don't, don't believe any medical cures at the moment. You know, hopefully a vaccine will come, but up until that time, just be sensible uh, and, you know, look after yourself and your families. You know, look after your mental health. You know, we will get through this, and if you can make some small sustainable lifestyle changes that helps you in the long term, they might also help you with this, and that, that would be my goal. And just make a slightly extra effort. That's what I would say. MashaAllah. And Dr. Neef? Yeah, completely agree with everything that Professor Spada said there uh, in terms of small changes. Very difficult time for all of us, especially during, during Ramadan now, uh, where we normally would all get together. But it's important that we maintain uh, the advice that's been given. Uh, we've got to stay apart from each other, both to protect our loved ones uh, and protect ourselves as well, and also to protect the, the National Health Service and allow it not to be overwhelmed with cases so it can look after us all during this very difficult time. We will get through it, inshallah. Um, there's no doubt about it and we will come out the other side but let's look after ourselves and each other during this difficult time Inshallah our guest from London Dr Farouk just uh, your final thoughts we know it's it's a good principle in Islam that when you hear a story you should confirm it before forwarding it on if only people could utilize that and use their common sense when they get all these silly whatsapps and we we are constantly fighting against misinformation and wrong information and it's as a result of this that people like us are having to talk on this and subjects and i want you know the people out there the, the muslim influences to do their bit uh to really spread the correct uh, truth about what's going on and just one very final thing you guys uh, watch me on beat the chasers last friday i came on and you guys can watch me taking on the chasers by all means watch me on itv <laughs> inshallah and thank you all for just being uh, fantastic uh, role models for the community um, just want to leave a, a message from our, my co-host, uh, Abdulaziz and Yazbay. Yeah, uh, great show. Sorry, Yonu. Uh, yeah, great show, uh, as always, and uh, really indebted to all the professional knowledge, and I'm sure the, I'm sure all the listeners will take a lot of heat from that. Thanks. Thanks very much. Yes. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, it's a, been a pleasure talking to all of you. Thank you all for listening. Um, and, you know, if you feel that this is something that affects you and you're really uh, wanting to support the NHS, do the right thing, stay at home. Thank you again for listening to us. Um, and if you still want to write to Nicola Sturgeon, please go ahead, put some pressure on the politics out there. Thank you. Inshallah. We'll be back next Monday, but Late Night Live will come back tomorrow. Uh, with Brother Zen, uh, but we'll be back next Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. So, inshallah, see you then. Khudafiz. 
Thank you for listening to Radio Ramadan 365 podcasts. Make sure to visit our Radio Ramadan website at rr365.co.uk to access all of our podcasts. Stay tuned on our social channels for future content. 